start, I want to thank the worship team team for um, picking such a God-glorifying hymn, a hymn that takes our focus off of what we do and lets us sing about what God has done for us. Um, who could not want to preach after a hymn like that? Okay, if you would turn with me today, we're going to continue our exposition um, of that, that epistle, that short epistle right before the book of Revelations of Jude. Um, when you turn with me today, we'll be um, going on our, our third exposition of this. And today our, our, our verses in Jude will be um, um, verses number 17 through verse number 23. Won't you turn with me now and let's hear the word of God. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So is the reading of God's most holy word. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for these reproving words of our brother of the brother of the Lord, Jude. We thank you for the marvelous way in which they instruct us concerning the trends and the viewpoints and the goals and the values of this world in which we are living today, so many centuries later. We thank you particularly that this little book speaks so accurately and correct, correct, correctly and pointedly to many of the difficulties that we face in the professing church today. The apostles were surely not wrong that in the last times there would come mockers walking after their own lust. And this we know is surely true. And we ask you, O Lord, today that you would preserve your church from both error and its doctrine and obedience to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, as we come to this third exposition um, of the letter of Jude, um, the brother of James, to the early church in Jerusalem, we have, may, we have what may be referred to as a sort of shifting of gears here. As you may remember from the previous two sermons in, in early May, Jude had intended to write a letter to the early church concerning the common salvation that awaited, for, that, that awaited those who would be kept for God, for Jesus Christ, until the end, end of the age. However, due to the infiltration of false teachers into the congregation, it became necessary for Jude to address a serious danger a serious threat that was present, as we will hear today, that has always been and always would be present in the church. As we've seen in verse 4, Jude reminds us that by God's eternal decree, those who seek to distort and to, perverse the gra uh, to pervert the grace of God had long been designated for condemnation. Such an understanding can often lead some of us to speculate as to whether God is being unfair and leaving these false teachers in their sin and thus leaving them condemned for all of eternity. However, it's very important to realize that God would have been perfectly just in condemning the, in condemning the, hot, the entire universe 
for the sin, for our rebellion against Him, and destroying mankind at the fall. And those of us who are being preserved and kept for Christ need to remember. We need to remember and we need to rest in God's revealed truth that He, by His grace, has extended His mercy to us while we were sinners. He, by His Holy Spirit, has brought us to saving faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, saving us from the punishment that we deserved. And it is He who keeps us there. In calling out the false teachers, the brother of James admonishes those who are being kept, so kept for Christ to contend for the faith once, in all delivered, once for all delivered to the saints. Reminding us that we are not to idly stand by and tolerate those who would seek to lead believers astray by distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ. That option is not left open to us. Jude goes on in verses 5 through 16 of his epistle to remind us of what we we once fully knew. To remind us that like the false teachers who had weaseled their way into the early church, that throughout all of redemptive history, throughout the entire Old Testament, there have always been within the church those who would doubt God's revealed truth. Those who would disobey God's holy law those who would seek to deceive the body of believers for their own gain, those who long ago were destined for destruction. Jude's purpose in these verses was to remind us by pointing to the scriptures, reiterating that we have been given revelation from the word of God about about what these false teachers would be like. And starting here today in verse 17, Jude now shifts gears from warning and admonition and warning and admonishment to give, to give guidance to believers on how they are to stand in a world filled with deception, filled with those who hate God, with those who seek their own glory and not the glory of the one true God. And in verses 17 through 23 today, Jude exhorts the church to do three things. We are to remember. We are to remain on the path of truth. And we are to reach out to those who are falling away. Let's look at Jude's first exhortation to remember, verses 17 through 19. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people, the void of the Spirit. Here we have Jude writing to the early church in the midst of what would have been a very difficult situation for the believers. What these false teachers were promoting was the idea that since the work of Christ had freed them from the curse of sin and death, that they were now able to sin without consequence. They had become what is often referred to in the church today as antinomians, a term that essentially can be translated as no law. And those who hold this view were proclaiming the false teaching that God's moral law no longer applied to Christian believers. Being that their sins had been forgiven through the work of Christ, they were no longer required to obey God's law. Many of you have probably already heard that saying, well, God likes to forgive, I like to sin, it's a perfect relationship. This is a gross distortion of the gospel of Christ. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, anticipated this very corruption of the gospel. While addressing this heretical teaching, Paul writes in Romans 3, verses 5 through 8, But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? 
that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with Satan. Paul says their condemnation is just. These false teachers were appealing to their antinomian views to justify and promote. And although we are not exactly sure, some kind of sexual sin, some kind of sensuality within the congregation. This was perverting the grace of God. And in light of this false teaching, many in the congregation were likely very confused. They may have found themselves quite tempted to go along with this teaching. After all, those promoting this false view had likely arisen to positions of leadership within the church. We see in verse 8 of this letter that they were claiming to have some sort of special revelation through their dreams that was to be taken as authoritative in Christ's church. None of us, this should sound strange to none of us, or surprise us in the church today. Now, even more than 2,000 years later, the church is replete with popular teachers who garner large amounts of crowds for themselves, who who garner attention proclaiming that they receive some kind of special revelation from God outside of what he has revealed to us in his word. And we need to be mindful even today not to fall for this deception. It's helpful here to recall, I, I know I go to this particular section of the Westminster Confession quite a bit, but it's important to always remember because this attack is so prevalent in the church today. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1. Article 6, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or the traditions of men. And in the midst of these distortions from those who sought their own gain, Jude in verse 17 admonishes true believers to remember. Remember what they had been taught by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 18, we, we, we see that many in this particular congregation had heard these very predictions with their own ears from the apostles themselves. Look at verse 18. They said to you, in these last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And although none of us here today can claim to have been taught directly by the apostles as this congregation was, we have ample amounts of warning of their warnings about the coming of false teachers recorded in the New Testament. We see in Matthew chapter 24, Matthew writing the own, his, uh, chapter 4 verse 24, Matthew recording the words of Christ. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, each, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter, three, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the myths. John writing in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And finally, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, 
Count your count and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of, of them, when he speaks in them of these manners. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do to the other scriptures. You see Peter here even acknowledging that th- these letters of Paul were, were actually scripture, where the word of God were to be contained in the canon, also realizes, as many of us today, that some of those things that Paul has written down are difficult for us to understand. But we are to struggle with those things. We are to struggle to understand God's word and to grow in his truth by reading and studying his word, by dealing with those challenging scriptures that seem not to to agree with our view of the world. Going back to verse 18, it's important to notice the particular time frame in which these predictions of the apostles are to come to pass. Jew says, in the last days. It's hard to overstate the significance of this framing statement. Here, Jude is clearly referring to the time in which he was currently writing. Now, why would he give this particular time period the designation of being the last days? Well, that is because with the coming of Jesus Christ to accomplish all the work that the Father had given him to do, history had reached an inflection point. As Harrison Perkins writes in his commentary on Jude, what Adam destroyed with his sin, God, from even the moments after the fall, promised to overcome this calamity through the seed of the woman. And as the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, the Son incarnate, erupted from heaven onto history and split the ages apart so that everything that God had formerly promised has now been performed. Christ will return to complete what he has begun, but the end of the ages has started. You see what Perkins is reiterating here is that just as the early church did, we currently live in these last times. The church today exists in this tension between the already and the not yet, in this period as we wait for the full consummation of the kingdom of Christ. He is gathering his elect from the four corners of the earth through the proclamation of his truth, through the preaching of his gospel. A former teacher of mine used to use World War II and the German surrender after the Battle of Berlin to illustrate this point. You see, although the German army surrendered to the Allied forces on May 8th of 1945, all the fighting between the two sides did not end then. There was a significant amount of skirmishes and small battles that took place in what might be called the mop-up operation. Between May May 9th in 1945 and December 31st of 1948, a total of 380 incidents took place, claiming the lives of 48 American troops and injuring another 189. It wasn't even until October of 1951 that the United States declared an end to the state of war with Germany. You see, the war had been won after the Battle of Berlin, but the full consequences of that victory were not realized until years later. And as Christians living in these last days, we live in that time between the victory, when the victory has already been won and secured, but our full reward has not yet been realized. But Paul tell, as Paul tells us in Romans, that day is closer than today than when we first believed. 
and that the very creation itself waits with eager, eager longing for the revelation, revealing of the sons of God. And while we wait for that glorious day, loved ones, when the Lord returns, Judah's reminding us that these scoffers will attack the church with false teaching, following their own ungodly passion, as Jude points out, conforming themselves to the world while twisting the word of God, teaching false doctrine in an attempt to lead the flock astray. We often hear it said in the church today that doctrine divides. But look at what Jude says here in verse 19. It's the false teachers who cause division. You see, true and pure doctrine contained in the word of God only builds up the church. It gives people of every tribe and tongue something to be united in. It's the false doctrine that divides the church. And as Christians, we are constantly admonished to be, remember, to be a remembering people, to remember that God is sovereign. The false teachers in the early church, as well as the ones amongst us now, never took or never take God by surprise. He revealed to his apostles that they would come. But Jude also reminds us that they are destined for condemnation, destined for destruction. And in, remember, and in remembering the predictions of the apostles, we are to be prepared to stand against those who would lead Christ's sheep astray. We're to make sure that we, are properly, that we properly catechize the next generation. This all starts with family worship. It continues in our own attentive to the means of grace that God has given his church, that the Lord has provided us, along with the study of God's word, to wrestle with those difficult passages of scripture, to know our confessions and our catechisms, so that we can be steadfast in defending the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It is in remembering these things that we are enabled to persevere as redeemed pilgrims traveling through this fading evil age. And that brings us to our second point. As we travel, we are to remain on the true path. Verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, some of you here may be wondering, especially if you sat, sat, sat for the first two sermons in early May, you may be wondering, is Jude confused here? Is he contradicting himself? Because in verse 1 he, he, in his, of his introduction, he tells us, that we are beloved by God and thus kept by God for Jesus Christ. But here in verse 21, we have Jude telling us to keep ourselves in the love of God. I've even seen some who refute the doctrine, that sweet doctrine of eternal security, use, this verse, use verse 21 as a proof text to argue that redeemed Christians can somehow lose their salvation, that the Holy Spirit does not keep the ones who are loved by God in faith that justified sinners can somehow become unjustified. So how would you understand verse 21 in light of verse 1? Well, let me give you an illustration, if I may. Every few years, our family takes a trip to see relatives in Missouri. And during these visits, we usually make sure to take a canoe trip down the current river through the Mark Twain National Forest. This whole adventure starts with our family loading onto a bus with all our canoes, our paddles, our life jackets, and heading 10 miles up the road to the drop-off point. All the while, we realize we're heading uphill. 
This butterfly ride is necessary because being true to its name, the current river has a very strong current, and it would be impossible to paddle up the river. Once we're upriver and shove off on our journey, there's no turning back. The current being so strong, it will eventually bring you down to the pickup point some 10 miles down the river. You don't even necessarily need a canoe. You could just literally jump in with nothing but your life jacket and do nothing, and you will end up at your destination. And although your destination is certain, there are some ways of going down the river that are more efficient than others. Some ways that shed more light on reality than others. It's a good idea that you stay in the middle of the river as much as possible so that you don't run aground and have to get out and drag your canoe across the river bottom. I know quite a bit about that. You have to know how to effectively use your paddle to navigate and keep your um, canoe pointed in the right direction or else the wind could get off the bow and turn you and make, have you going down the river sideways. Rebecca and Hannah know a lot about that. You have to maintain your balance and not lean too far to one side or the other or else you will tip over. Joe learned that the hard way. Often at the beginning of the trip, especially for first-timers, it can be rough going. But often as you progress down the river, you gain experience and things tend to go a little more smoothly. You start to become more proficient and that peaceful trip you had imagined at the start starts to become more of a reality. You see what Jude is doing in verses 20 and 21 is laying out those things that we need to practice as we travel down that true path. Just as a journey down the river requires certain proficiencies and practices, so does our journey through the Christian life. To start out, we are to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Well, to build anything, we're going to need a strong and firm foundation, aren't we? And that foundation is found in Jesus Christ. The one whom, as we learned in Luke chapter 24, you remember that scene in the road to Amasis where Luke is walking and the, with the, uh, where, where, where Jesus is, has risen from the grave and he's walking with the two apostles. And what does he do? He teaches them from the scriptures. He teaches them from the scriptures to show that he was the promised Messiah, the one whom all the laws of Moses and the prophets pointed to. The seed of the woman who was promised way back in Genesis 3.15. The one who would curse, crush the head of the serpent. The lion from the tribe of Judah. The root of Jesse. The seed of David. Born of a virgin in Palestine more than 2,000 years ago. The one who succeeded where Adam failed. Living a life of perfect obedience to the law of God. Which enabled him to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of all whom would believe. And trust in him, freeing us from the curse of sin and death, bestowing upon us a righteousness that is not our own, a righteousness that he earned as our federal head, as our once and for all redeemer. And if we build our foundation on anything else or anyone else other than Jesus Christ, it will be a foundation, as that great hymn we always sing, a foundation of seeking sand. Unable to stand against the world filled with false teachers, a world filled with lies, a world riddled with corruption, where the enemies of God so often seem to be gaining the upper hand. And a world, as we realize as we pray for our loved ones and friends today, where we are so often confronted with the realities of sickness and death. 
You see, loved ones, our only true foundation is a foundation built on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because he was the one who was able to overcome the world, overturning the power of sin and death, as he told his apostles in John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In a world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jude goes on in verse 20 to instruct us to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Now as many teach today, this is not a reference to praying in tongues or some kind of foreign language that may just magically come to us. What Jude here is saying, that we are to pray in a manner that allows the Spirit to lead us. Not to try to impress God with the elegance of our words, our inflated sense of self, our goals and our desires. But to pray knowing our weakness. And knowing that as Paul teaches in Romans 8, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. Lastly, in remaining in God's love, we're instructed in verse 21, to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The Lord will return to consummate his kingdom on a day and time that only he knows. And as those who long for that appearing, we will be rewarded on that day when he wipes away every teardrop from our eyes. And it's so easy now to grow impatient to continue to struggle with our own sin and the sin of sins of others in this fallen world. As we sit as 21st century Americans and our institutions and those, those leaders we've always relied in seem to be crumbled, seem to be riddled with corruption, seem to be falling into perversion. But we have to remember that the most amazing miracle, amazing miracle is happening around us each and every day. The miracle of our Lord calling fallen sinners to faith and repentance. Every day rescuing them from the eternal punishment that they rightly deserved. We were those fallen sinners. And as he gathers his elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation, as we progress in our sanctification through the trials of this world, learning more and more to put our trust in Christ, and as we wait his return, we're able we are to be we were able to be reminded that the assurance of eternal life is something that we will never be able to merit for ourselves it is not based on our obedience if it was none of us here today could stand but it's because of the mercy of our savior that we have been granted eternal life as john calvin writes in his commentary on jude but it ought to be noticed that he would not have us hope for eternal life except through the mercy of Christ. For he will in such a manner be our judge and to have no other rule in judging us than, than that gratuitous benefit of redemption obtained by himself. And as we remember what was taught by the apostles, as we rest upon the foundation laid by Christ, remaining in his mercy, Jude admonishes us in verse 22 and verse 23, to reach out to the lost, to reach out to those who are falling away. And that's our third point today, our final point. Verse 22 and verse 23, and have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, 
hating even the the garment stained by the flesh. You see, Jude knows very well that as fallen sinners, our natural inclination is anger towards false teachers, is anger towards sinners, to those who would try to lead us astray. But remembering the mercy shown to us by Christ, knowing that while we were sinners, he rescued us, we are to show mercy to those, to the lost, by reaching out to those who may cause trouble and division in the church, seeking repentance and restoration for all those who have fallen into sin and licentiousness, those who twist the word of God for their very own gain. And the Bible does not leave us guessing about how we should go about this process. And in seeking wisdom, we can look to God's word, to what it teaches us about church discipline, something that's fallen out of fashion in many churches today. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and tax collector. Seems like those tax collectors were never very popular. You see, church discipline is not something that is just contrived by mean, overbearing elders to seek excessive control over the congregation. No, it is something that comes from the word of God that we are commanded to do by Christ himself. No, the goal is always to bring our brothers and sisters who have fallen into sin to repentance, to restoration. And this such process should never be, it should always be approached with gentleness. Paul writing to the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if any of you have caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch for yourselves, lest ye fall and be tempted. But if the one under discipline refuses to repent or refuses to cease from promoting false doctrine, they are to be treated as an unbeliever and put out of the church. Again, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. However, this is always to be done while making sure that the person under the individual under discipline understands that if they should seek repentance and restoration, the door of the church will always be open to them. So in closing today, as we go out into the world this coming week, Let us heed the teaching of the brother of James from the household of our Lord. Let us remember what God has done in his sovereignty. Let us seek to remain on that firm foundation built by the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us be diligent in reaching out to those who are falling away, who are falling into temptation, looking to the word of God for guidance and wisdom. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you today for these words of Jude, Lord. We thank you for these these commands. We we thank you for these um, imperatives that he has given us to to follow as we walk through this fading evil age. We thank you that we would heed these words as we go out this week and that we would rest in your sovereignty and your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.